Welcome to the Calvary Young Adults Podcast. We exist to make disciples who live and love like Jesus. Here's today's sermon. All right, church. Hey, if you have a Bible with you, I want to grab that right now. We'll be in Luke chapter 8 tonight. Luke chapter 8. Uh, as we wrap up a teaching series that we began six weeks ago, where we've been looking at Calvary's core, we've been really talking about uh, the six core values of Calvary Community Church, um, the six sentences, the six phrases, the six values uh, that really shape and form uh, the core of what we want this church to be. Uh, the first week we talked about this value, you'll see it on the wall, that's all about Jesus. Second week we talked about God's people delight in God's word. The third week we'll see on the back there that life change happens in relationship. Uh, the week after that we talked about found people find people. Last week we talked about save people serve people. And tonight we're going to talk about the final uh, core value here at Calvary is disciples who live in love like Jesus. Uh, and that final core value is that grateful people are giving people. That grateful people are giving people. Now, when we talk about grateful people being giving people, the real thing that we're going to drive home is that we as followers of Jesus are meant to be a giving people. That giving means we're going to give of our time, we're going to give of our talent, we're going to give of our ability, we're of our passion, of all these things, but it also means that we're going to give of our treasure, of our money, of our financial resources. And tonight, I want to be abundantly clear from the top that tonight I'm going to talk to you about giving generously to the work of the Lord through the local church. Now, I know when I say that, there are a great number of you in this room who kind of wish you had stayed home to watch Thursday Night Football tonight, okay? Like, I just, that's like, I'm just not lost on me that when churches talk about money, the temperature goes up and so do the defensive walls. And I understand why in every way that happens and I get where that dynamic comes into play, but here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced that if we're going to make disciples who live in love like Jesus, which is the mission of our church, it's not that we could talk about money, it's that we must talk about money. And here's why. Jesus has these words to say in um, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter six and verse 24, he says this. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. And there's a fascinating thing here to me that he does not say, Jesus does not say, you cannot serve both God and the devil, both God and Satan. He doesn't even say you can't serve both God and your own wants and your own wishes and your own needs. He doesn't say you can't serve God and the wicked, evil, awful things of this world. No, the number one thing that Jesus sets up as a competitor to your heart against God is money. And so for Jesus, money is not some sort of side issue. It's not some sort of strange thing that only pastors should care about. It is the thing that is right at the core of what it means for us to follow Jesus because you cannot serve both God and money. And because we believe what Jesus said is true and because we believe what Jesus said actually shapes how we should work as a church, here's what I'm convinced of. That a church that will not talk about money is a church that cannot make disciples of Jesus. So if we as a church choose not to talk about money, not to talk about generosity, not to talk about your wallet, and not to talk about your income and what you do with the money that God's placed in your hands, we are not able to make disciples of the Jesus who said, you cannot serve both God and money. So tonight, we're gonna talk about money. We're gonna talk about generosity. We're gonna talk about giving. And here's what I want you to hear from the elders of our church who wrote this statement. When it comes to this value that grateful people are giving people, it says this. It says, we see a church filled with people who give regularly, <clears throat> proportionately, generously, and cheerfully to the work of the Lord through our church. Rooted in the biblical principle of grace giving, we give out of response to what Jesus has given through us through his death and resurrection. We believe that sacrificial giving is the mark of mature disciples of Jesus who gave everything for us. We consider the words of Paul who said to the Corinthian church, but since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see also that you would excel in this grace of giving. See, this desire we have as the leadership of this church is that all of us would excel in this grace of giving, that generosity, that giving, that being a people who freely give because the Lord freely gave to us is something that drives discipleship right here at Calvary. So we're gonna to turn to Luke chapter eight. That's where we're gonna to be tonight. Hey, I'll tell you in advance, if you've already picked up on my voice, um, apparently having children just means being sick for about 20 years, okay? Um, that's what happens. So like, I just got over an illness. We all thought we were in the all clear. And then one of them, 
them, either the preschooler or the kindergartner in that house, uh, brought home a special gift to us. And so that's what we're working through tonight. So if you hear me sound off or anything like that, now you know why. Um, Children, it's the best, the best blessing. All right, Luke chapter eight, verse one. Here's what we'll look at tonight. It says, after this, now the after this here is actually after this moment where Jesus is anointed by this woman. This woman anoints Jesus with perfume. It's actually this really powerful and scandalous moment where Jesus welcomes this woman and says, she is actually welcomed into my kingdom. I came for people just like her. It says, after this moment, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, I've talked about before in this room that Jesus's ministry was a teaching ministry that was verified and bolstered by miracles. Meaning the point of Jesus's ministry is he came to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. He came to proclaim a message about who God was and what God was actually about in this world. And he taught that message from village to village, from city to city, from town to town. It was a preaching ministry that Jesus was involved in. And you'll see here that he is proclaiming a very specific message. And that message is the good news of the kingdom of God. When you see good news in the New Testament that comes out of the Greek word euangelion, which is the word gospel. The gospel, the good news, is the good news that Jesus proclaims about himself. And here is the good news of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom is that the king has come to rescue and rule his people. That's the good news that Jesus came to proclaim, that the king, Jesus himself, has come to rescue his people. And what does he rescue us from? He rescues us from the problem of sin. Like I need to say right up from the start tonight that the whole story of Jesus is that you turned your back on God, sinned against him, went in your own direction and deserved destruction for that. And instead of letting you walk straight into destruction, Jesus comes to rescue that for you from that destruction, save you from your sin and make you right with God. As Jesus is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, he is proclaiming the good news that Jesus has come to rescue and save those who have turned their back on God. And so I just need you to hear that tonight. Like if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian or you're here tonight and you're just trying to check out what Jesus is all about, what I want you to know above all is that God looks at you in all of the ways you've turned your back on him and says, I still want that woman and I still want that man. I would do anything for them to be in my family. That's why Jesus came into this world to save sinners like me and sinners like you. So the good news is that Jesus comes to rescue his people, but the good news is also that Jesus comes to rule his people. And it is good news that Jesus rules your life. It's good news that Jesus has something to say about how you're supposed to live. And the reason it's good news that Jesus has something to say about your life is because Jesus is smarter than you. And I know sometimes we don't like think of Jesus in this way, but but I love this quote. um, uh, It's not gonna be on the screen, uh, but this quote from Dallas Willard, he once said this. He says, no one can say Jesus is Lord if they hesitate to say Jesus is smart. Because really what it is, is Jesus knows, he understands how life works. And the reason Jesus understands how life works is because he created it. He knows everything about it. And so the good news is that Jesus, yes, rescues us, but it's also good news that Jesus rules us and tells us how to live. Because when we live in accordance to the way Jesus told us to live, what we're promised in the New Testament is the fullness of joy. So this is the good news of the kingdom that Jesus proclaims. He's come to rescue his people. He's come to rule over his people. And here's why I need us to start here tonight. Because I think giving begins with grasping and understanding the good news of the kingdom the good news of Jesus. That's where giving begins. Listen, we're not talking tonight about, hey, this church needs a bunch of money, so we need you to give this money, or hey, we're launching this new campaign. There's no special offering. There's no big campaign we're launching tonight. This is not ultimately about us twisting someone's arm into giving money to our church. Giving begins with the gratitude and the understanding of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished on your behalf. Our deepest desire at this church is not that you would give, it's not that you would be generous. Our deepest and most fundamental desire is that you would understand the good news of Jesus who rescues and rules over his people. It goes on this way in the story. It says, the 12 were with him. That's his disciples, these 12 men who follow him. And in verse two, it says, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. So when you have in your mind Jesus and his followers, you may have in your mind that it was Jesus and his 12 guys following after him wherever he went. 
And that's accurate in some parts of the Bible, but the thing that sometimes gets cut out of the stories, even in movies or film or television or paintings, is these women who are following after Jesus as well. Three of them are named here. You have Mary and Joanna and Susanna, but we're also told there's many others who are following after him. And what we're told about these women is not much. We're told some of their background and some of their relationships, but what we're really told him is that there are women who have been cured of evil spirits and diseases. And this is a really fascinating thing about Jesus. In a culture that often ignored women or put women to the side or didn't have any space or time for women, Jesus saw women and he healed them. He loved them. He valued them in a way the culture around them did not value them at all. So Jesus looks at them, says, you are created in God's image. And not only do I want to know you, not only do I want to save you, I want to heal you. It says they've been cured and healed of evil spirits and diseases. And you got to imagine that because of that, that's why they're following after Jesus. Like they didn't get argued into faith because someone handed them a book. That They didn't start following Jesus because they felt bad and decided to do it. They'd encountered God's powerful presence through the person and work of Jesus. They'd encountered God's healing through Jesus and his life and his ministry. And because of that, they were following after Jesus. Like you got to imagine for these women, they would tell their story that they would say at one point, I was just kind of crippled and totally taken over by this evil spirit that was inside of me. But then I met Jesus and he changed my whole life. I had this disease. It was incurable. There was nothing, anyone, none of the doctors could help me. But then Jesus came along and he cured it and he changed me. You got to imagine that the women in this story are telling a story that's very much like the most famous hymn you and I have ever sung. I want you to think of the words of this hymn where it says, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. You got to imagine these women would sing a song very similar to this, would have a heartbeat very similar to this, that I was in, I was in trouble. I had nothing. I was stuck. I had no way out, but Jesus encountered me and he changed me. And through his power, he made me whole. He made me right. Like, I just think for these women, the easiest thing for them to have in the world for Jesus would be gratitude, right? right? That's what the song is. It's a gratitude for the grace of God, the mercy of God, the goodness of God, the love of God. And here's what I'm convinced of. This is true for every part of your spiritual life, that all true spiritual growth is rooted in gratitude. It's rooted in gratitude. So hear me on this. Um, if you sing Christian songs, but do not have gratitude for who God is and what he's accomplished in your life, if you come into this place and you are the loudest person singing and your hands are in the air, but it's not rooted in gratitude for who God is, you're singing songs, but you're not worshiping. Worship begins with gratitude. If you are the person who prays all the time and you spend hours of your day on your face and you're praying and you're crying out to God, but it's not rooted in gratitude for Jesus and how he saved you. It's rooted in some kind of desire to control or manipulate God. You're crying out, but you're not actually praying. But like every single part of our spiritual life, whether it's community or service or generosity or anything, it all needs to be rooted in gratitude in order for it to be true, spiritual and Christian growth. And I'm convinced that the same is true for our giving. Listen, we say at this church all the time, we don't want you to give out of guilt. We don't want you to give out of shame. We're not interested in someone feeling bad and so throwing a couple bucks in the offering plate to make themselves feel a little better. That's not spiritual growth. That's not how Christians grow to be more like Jesus. We believe and we teach a form of giving here at Calvary that's called grace giving. Here's grace giving. That we don't give out of obligation or rules, but out of response to the grace of God. This is what we believe grace giving to be. That we give not out of obligation, not because in order to be a part of this church, you need to give a certain percent of your income or you need to give this much if you wanna be around here. There's no obligation here. And listen, it's not just obligation, there's no rule. So listen, in the New Testament, the Old Testament, you'll see something called a tithe. And the word tithe literally means 10th. The word actually just means one tenth. And the idea in the Old Testament, and Jesus even affirms it in the New Testament, is that a believer is to take a tenth of their income and to give it to the work of the Lord, to give it to what God is doing in this world. So if you make $30,000, you give $3,000. If you make $70,000, you give $7,000. If you make $200, you give $20, right? It's whatever that is, you give a tenth. And different Christians are going to disagree on whether or not the tithe is still in place for the Christian. And here's what we believe here at Calvary. We believe here at Calvary that the primary reason for giving in the New Testament 
is not a rule, an obligation, or a percentage, but a response you have to the grace of God. I love the way Pastor Sean, our senior pastor here at Calvary, puts it. He talks about the tithe, this tenth, being like training wheels. Like when you're teaching someone to ride a bike on training wheels, the idea is that the training wheels help them get their balance. It helps them figure out what this bike thing is all about. But the eventual goal is to take the rules off of it. That's what the tithe is. I think a tithe is a wonderful thing for you to shoot for, but the goal isn't that you hit your 10% and move along with your life. The goal is that you would increasingly become generous, responding to the grace of God, that there might even be people in this room as they grow spiritually in Jesus, who where 10% becomes the floor, not the ceiling of their giving. See, that's what we mean by grace giving. Grace giving is out of response to the grace and the mercy of God. That's what we believe we're called to give. Just like these women who are following Jesus, they're a part of his life. And, and why are they doing that? Why are they following after Jesus and doing what they're doing? Because God has shown a gracious work in their heart. I love the way Randy Alcorn puts it when he talks about grace giving. He says, it being our giving doesn't come out of altruism or philanthropy. So, so hear me on this. Um, when we call people to give here, it's not because like, hey, try to be a good person and give some money. Or try to be a philanthropic person and like think about others and give some money. No, he says, no, it's not that. It comes out of the transforming work of Christ in us. This grace is the action. His grace is the action. Our giving is the reaction. We give because he first gave to us. This is what the women in this, in this sermon or in this story experience. It's what we experience in our life. And we give out of reaction and response to what Jesus has already done in our life. Verse three says this. It says these women, <clears throat> these women were helping support them out of their own means. So, so there's some them and these women. So these women who we just talked about here were helping to support them, meaning Jesus and his disciples, out of their own means. Now, now this is a really interesting part of the story and truthfully something I never thought about. I grew up in church. Uh, I was always part of a church, but it took me forever to even think about the fact um, to answer the question, like how in the world did Jesus and his disciples get to do their ministry? Because you think about Jesus and the disciples, they're just going town to town proclaiming the gospel, right? It doesn't say like Jesus and his disciples have like a business going on the side and they're selling things so they can fund it. They're going town to town, they're preaching the gospel, they're staying somewhere, they're eating somewhere, they have clothes, they have basic needs of their life. And how are those needs being met? And the answer is actually found right here in the book of Luke in the eighth chapter, this story we're reading. The answer is simply, Jesus's ministry was funded by a group of his women followers. That's how the ministry of Jesus was funded. That's how Jesus was able to go from town to town proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. That's how Jesus was able to do every single thing you see in the gospels. You see what Jesus does in the gospels all throughout it. The reason Jesus and his disciples were able to do that was because of this group of women followers who were funding the ministry of Jesus. Now, if I say that and that makes you uneasy because you go, well, Jesus could have done that without him. Here's what I want you to know. He sure could have, but he chose to receive these funds anyway. Jesus chooses to receive these funds. I want to ask this question. Why did Jesus receive financial support from his followers? Because, listen, if Jesus is God in human flesh, which we believe he is, then he has all of the ability and the power of God. Certainly, if Jesus was God, he could have generated money out of thin air and been able to pay for his bills. Why in the world would he do this? In fact, we think about it. Here's what the, the scriptures say in Psalm chapter 24 and verse one. It says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Like in other words, if Jesus is the Lord, if Jesus is God, the earth belongs to him already. He's not in need of anyone's cash. Or I love this in Psalm chapter 50, verse nine, where, where God says this, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens for every animal in the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. In other words, you know what God says throughout the whole Bible? I don't need your cash because I already own it. I don't need your stuff because it's already mine. I don't need anything you think you own because I actually own everything. And so here's the question. If Jesus already owns everything, why does he receive financial support from these women followers? Like the question I want to ask is this. If God doesn't need our money, why does he ask for it? If God doesn't need your money in order to accomplish what he's trying to accomplish in this world, why does he ask for it? If God could do everything he needs to do without you ever giving a dime to your local church, why in the world would he ask for it? And I wanna give you a simple answer this evening. It's this, that God asks for our money to grow our maturity. God asks for our money 
to grow our maturity. Uh, let me give you a simple example that I think all of you will immediately understand. Um, uh, when I was a kid, like all of you, um, my favorite time of the year, um, perhaps for some of you, uh, would, this would be the same, was Christmas time. Uh, and I loved Christmas time. And even now, as a dad, we're starting to talk about, okay, Christmas, Thanksgiving's coming, Christmas is coming, we're starting to think about our plans, all this kind of stuff. And as a kid, I, I'm sure many of you were just like me. Christmas was awesome because there was cookies and there were songs and there was great church services, all the wonderful things. But like the highlight of Christmas was always and would always be Christmas morning. Because I'm excited about the presents. I'm excited for what I'm going to get. I think of this Christmas coming up. My kids are already talking to me about what they want for Christmas. Amazon.com sent them a catalog and they just flipped through it and circled all the things they want, right? They're excited about Christmas. They're excited about the toys they're going to get. And listen to me, they should be excited because it's an exciting day. There is nothing wrong with my children being excited about the presents they're going to receive. When it comes to Christmas morning, the thing they are most excited about is opening up presents that cannot wait for Christmas morning to open up these presents. And there's nothing wrong with children thinking that way. But if you learn that me, as a 35-year-old man, was equally excited as my children to open up presents. That all I was thinking about in the month of December is I wonder what everyone's gonna get me for Christmas. And I was just thinking about Christmas and I was talking to all my friends about Christmas and I couldn't wait to tell people what I got for Christmas. And on Christmas morning, I woke up and my children are like, can we open presents? And I was like, me first, right? You would think that is an immature man. That is a man who has not grown up. That is a man who is immature. Why? Because we all intuitively understand that as we grow up, it should be less about us, less about what we receive, and more about what we give. We all intuitively understand that as a 35-year-old man with three children, I should be more excited about what I'm giving to them than what I'm receiving on that day. See, we all understand intuitively that our money and our view on our money and possessions and the things we get ultimately is a reflection of our maturity. What is God after in your heart? God is after you becoming the type of person who grows in maturity. And the, one of the main tools he's going to do that through is your money. God is gonna mature you through how you use your money, how you spend your money, how you save your money, and how you give your money away. See, tonight I want you to understand how God wants to mature you. I want you to understand the type of maturity that God wants to grow in you. And in order to do that, I just wanna use one simple verse. You can flip there if you want, or just see it here on the screen in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse seven. Here's the verse we'll camp out on for the rest of tonight. It simply says this, that each of you should give what you have decided in your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know how God wants to mature you and make you more like his son, Jesus? He wants to do it through what you see right here in this text. The first words you'll see here are really important for all of us to understand tonight, and that's simply this, that each of you should give, it says. That each of you should give. That each of you, if you study it in the Greek language, means each of you, every one of you, Every single individual in this room who calls themselves a follower of Jesus should be someone who is financially giving, who is generous. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, maybe you're just checking this out, trying to see what this is all about, I wanna let you off the hook right now. This is not a call to you. I'm not interested in you showing up at church and feeling guilty or feeling weird and throwing money in or anything like this. You're off the hook for tonight. But if you are a follower of Jesus, you love the Lord, you have been baptized, you're following after Jesus, this is a command and a call upon your life that each of you should give. And I wanna talk tonight about the four ways that we are called to give. Four ways that we're called to give based on this text here. The four things you're going to see here, uh, right here in this text. So let me give you four ways we're called to give. Number one, we are called to give regularly, not randomly. Regularly, not randomly. Um, so one of the things that can really happen in church is that giving can just become this random thing that's kind of based on a few things. So sometimes church folk give based out of emotion. So they just kind of like feel good some days. And so they throw money in an offering plate or throw it in the wall or give online. Uh, and if they don't feel so good, they don't. 
Or other times it's kind of based on like, hey, I got a check, things are going well, I'll just throw a little money in here, but times are leaner and so you don't throw anything in. Or, or really the worst way that it goes about is people kind of, instead of like giving to the church, they kind of like tip the church based on service. Sort of like, oh, that opening worship set crushed it tonight, I'm throwing in a little more. Oh, that sermon was awful. It was my, that was my least favorite sermon, I'm not giving anything this week, right? And so they kind of give based off performance as if church is like a service and church is kind of this consumer thing. But here's what I want you to see in 1 Corinthians 16 too. Here's what Paul says. He says, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. And I love what Paul is trying to say here. Well, what Paul says here, you'll see these first week, or on the first day of every week, in other words, there's a rhythm, there's a pattern, there's a plan to it. The idea is that you set aside a certain amount of money or a certain percentage of your income, that you have a plan, that you're going about it, and that what you're gonna do is you're going to give that amount of money and you're gonna give it each week or each month or you're gonna give it each year, that you have some kind of plan. Well, like, here's a simple question I wanna ask some of you. Um, how much money do you plan on giving away in 2023? And uh, Well, all of it is one answer. <laughs> Um, and, 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 and some of it might be another answer, but, but here's my concern for some of you is that you don't actually have an answer. Like you've not really sat down and thought about, here's what I want to give away this year. And here's the thing. I'm not interested in that number being impressive to me. I don't even know the numbers. I need you to know if you give to this church, I have no idea what anyone gives to this church. But my concern for some of us is we don't sit down on the first day of every week or the first day of every year and plan out and think about. And so what really happens is we don't end up giving anything because here's what I've learned over time, that you do not drift into generosity. Nobody drifts into generosity. You don't just accidentally stumble into generosity. Generosity is something that happens. It's planned. It's careful. It's thoughtful. It's like, have you ever had a moment where you're driving on the freeway and then you suddenly realize that you're over in like the carpool lane, but your exit is five lanes over that way. And you've immediately got to switch from the carpool lane to your exit. And so you're driving down the freeway. In the moment that you're driving down the freeway and realize that you need to make your way over to the exit, you don't just kind of like keep the music on and just kind of like drift over slowly. No, here's what you do in that moment. You shut off the music. You tell everyone else in the car to quiet down. And then you start moving very intentionally and carefully toward the exit. Why? Because if you don't move very intentionally and carefully toward the exit, the flow of traffic will take you right by where you want to go. And here's what I need you to know. In the consumeristic, money-driven culture we live in, if you are not intentional about giving, if you don't have a plan, if you're not working this plan, the flow of traffic will just take you down this consumeristic, money-centric road where you give nothing out of your income to the work of the Lord. That's what will happen to you. Why? Because we do not drift into generosity. God has called us to give in such a way that is regular and not random. Here's the second way we're called to give here, that we are called to give proportionately, not equally, proportionately, not equally. And I wanna go back again to that verse in 1 Corinthians 16, verse two, where Paul says, on the first day of the week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. So here's the idea in the New Testament, that you are called to give in keeping with your income. So it's not that everyone here is supposed to give $20 a week or $100 a week or $2 a week. The idea is that you're supposed to think about what has God given me, what income do I have, and based off that income, I'm going to give. Some of you might end up giving a lot more. Some of you might end up giving a lot less. I'm willing to wager the incomes of folks in this room is lower than the income of places in other rooms in this church, right? This is the young adults. This is college students. You're going, I make like 20 bucks a week with inflation. That's like no bucks a week. It's negative bucks a week. Like, and I get that. So the goal isn't that everyone gives an equal amount. Sometimes people think, well, what's the budget of our church this year? Okay, it's just over $10 million. Okay, how many people go to this church? Just divide it by that many people. But that's not how it works at all. We're called to give in keeping with our income. So I want you to think about it this way. I want you to imagine I invite two people up on stage and I turn to the person on my right and I give them $100 cash just out of my wallet. I don't have it in my wallet, but let's pretend. Give them $100. I say, you can do whatever you want with this $100. Could you just make sure to give away a little bit of that money? Maybe give away 10% of that money. And they go, okay, cool, sounds good. And then I look to the person over here and I say, you know, I'm gonna give you $1,000 cash, but can you make sure to give away 100 of those dollars? And they say, okay. But then eventually person on my right and person on my left talk and person on my left goes, wait, you're only giving away $10? I have to give away $100. 
But if that person on my left complained, every single one of you would think the thing I'm thinking in my heart. It's like you got $1,000. The reason you give away more is because you've been given more. The reason you give away less is because you've been given less. That's what Jesus has to say in Luke 12, where he says, for everyone who's been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been trusted with much, much more will be asked. Proportionality is the, is, the, is the philosophy when it comes to giving in the New Testament. I wanna give you the third way here, four ways we're called to give. Number three, we were called to give generously, not cautiously. Generously, not cautiously. Um, I think there exists in all of us this little fear when it comes to giving. And here's the little fear we have. The, the little fear is what if I give away so much money? What if I give away so much? that I actually end up needing that at some point? Like, what if I give to the point where I actually end up damaging myself? And, and, and I know where that little fear exists. That little fear exists because somewhere inside of us, we're, we're, we're cautious. Somewhere inside of us, we think, man, we're just gonna get broke by giving away too much. Somewhere inside of us, we have that. But, but, but here's what I want you to know, um, that this is one of these lies that you believe um, because it's not actually happened to you. Well, like I just don't, maybe it has happened to you. Maybe you have actually given away so much in your life that you have been completely ruined, but I don't think that's the case for you. I love this quote I found this week. It said, examples are few of men ruined by giving. And I think that's true. Again, you could probably tell me some story of someone who gave away too much somewhere, but that almost never happens in our life. And the impulse for us when we are giving and giving and giving is to think at some point I'm gonna give too much and it's going to ruin my life and ruin my family. Like this happened to Danny and I. It was a couple of years back. Um, we were um, celebrating someone's birthday. Uh, actually, no, it, well, it was a birthday. Well, anyway, we were celebrating this person's birthday and we had kind of agreed like what we were going to get them um, and the amount we were going to spend. And so uh, what we did was we kind of agreed that during like our monthly budget meeting we had and we kind of made this decision and then she went off and, and she purchased the thing. But without knowing it, I also purchased the thing. And so we both texted each other on the same day to be like, hey, guess what? I actually did the thing. I, I was trying to do that. And so we ended up double gifting the person. And here's the gross part of my spirit. Then in that moment that I double gifted the person, my first thought was, well, how can I get it back? But that's not what we want to do. We don't have this heart of like, well, we gave too many gifts to this one person, so I guess we've kind of ruined ourselves. I got to tell you, this was years ago. I have no recollection of it other than this story coming into my mind, other than this moment. It didn't ruin us. It didn't hurt us financially. We were just double generous to someone in that moment. And here's my burden for us. My burden for us is that we would be a people who say, if the worst thing that happens here is I was too generous, that's some of the best thing that could possibly happen to you. Again, we're called to give generously, not cautiously. And then here's the fourth and final thing, that we are called to give cheerfully, not obligatorily. We're called to give cheerfully, not obligatorily. You'll see here in verse seven of 2 Corinthians 9, um, you'll see here that it says we're called to give uh, what we've decided in our heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. In other words, we give cheerfully, not obligatorily, because here's what you need to understand, um, that the way in which you give a gift to person and the spirit in which you give it actually deeply impacts the meaning and the way that gift is received. So I want you to imagine this scenario. I want you to imagine... Um, that it's my wife's birthday. Next month in November, it's my wife's birthday. And I want you to imagine that I go out and I get her a very special gift. It was thoughtful. It was kind. It was something she always wanted. Um, it's her birthday. It's the morning. She opens up this gift. She sees it. She's so excited. She's so blessed by it. And she looks and she goes, Brian, that was so sweet of you and so kind of you. Thank you so much for getting this gift. And I want you to imagine I look back. Thank you. I want you to imagine I look back at my wife and I say, I am so happy that you're happy. It just makes me so happy that you love this. There is not a single chance in the world that my wife is going to look at me in that moment and be like, you are so selfish. All you care about in this moment is your own happiness. I thought this gift was for my happiness, but here you are going on and on about how happy this makes you. Like that's not gonna make her sad. That's not gonna take away from the moment. Me being like, I'm so happy you're happy doesn't rob from her. Imagine scenario B here. Scenario B here, she opens up the present and she's so happy. She goes, Brian, I'm so, so, this is amazing. I can't believe you did this for me. Thank you so much. And I hold up my hand just like this, like only a husband could. and go, babe, just don't speak anything of it. That was my duty as a husband. No more, no less. I am completely emotionally unattached to this gift I just gave you. And I do not care. <laughs> now, now, you might think to yourself, but Brian, 
That's not you seeking your own happiness, that's you seeking hers. But what you would actually know if you're a real life human being with emotions is that my lack of happiness, my indifference toward giving her that gift does not make her feel more loved, it makes her feel less loved. My indifference toward that gift does not make the gift more special, it makes it less special. Because what ultimately matters when we are giving a gift is the heart, it is the posture, it is the joy, it is the delight of the person we are giving the gift toward. And what we should be after when we are giving toward the work of the Lord and ultimately giving to God himself is the heart and the reception of God himself. And so here's the question I wanna ask tonight. It's the question I'll be asking all weekend to our church. And it is similar to a question I asked last week. Last week I asked a question. I said, is God pleased with the way I'm currently serving? Is God pleased with the way I'm currently serving? And the thing I said to wrestle with was, is God pleased? And the answer might be, yes, he's pleased with how you're serving. And the answer might be, no, I need to lean in and use my gifts. And the answer wasn't, you need to owe me an answer or someone around you an answer. The answer is, is God pleased? And this week I wanna ask a similar question. Is God pleased with the ways I'm currently giving? Is God pleased with it? Like, are you giving regularly, proportionately, cheerfully, generously? Are you giving in such a way that pleases God? And again, I'm not asking the question, are you pleased with the way you're currently giving? You might be quite pleased with the way you're currently giving and the God of the universe is not pleased with it. So you don't owe me an answer. Like I said, I don't see your giving statement. I don't know how much you've given. I'm never gonna know that and I don't need to know that and don't want to know that. But what I do want is for you to have a heart before the Lord that knows whether God is pleased with the way you're giving or not. And here's what I know. There's two groups of people in this room at least. The first, I think God is pleased with the way you're giving. Like again, the goal of this sermon is not just to get everyone to give a little more and do a little more and twist your arm and make you feel guilt and shame. Guilt and shame are powerful short-term motivators, but they will never create lasting fruit. Why? Because all true spiritual growth is not rooted in guilt and shame, but in gratitude. So that's not the goal here. For some of you, the answer is, man, you have so little money here right now and yet you're giving generously, proportionate to your income right now and God looks down at you and he is pleased. And praise God for that. And if you believe God is pleased with the way you're giving right now, keep leaning in because God loves to bless those he's pleased with. But, but then if your answer right now is no, and you're just going, okay, honestly, Brian, I don't give regularly, proportionately, cheerfully, generously. I don't give at all. I only give a little. I occasionally throw, whatever your answer is, whatever it's going on right now, if that's your answer, again, tonight is not about guilt. It's not about shame. It's not about you feel bad, so you give money. We're not gonna pass a plate at the end and be like, here's a big offering we're taking up. Tonight is simply an invitation into you experiencing God's goodness through the act of offering. So I wanna give you four practical next steps here, um, four next steps toward giving. Here's the first next step toward giving. Number one, start with prayer. Start with prayer. Um, if you feel like you are not pleasing the Lord in the way you're being using your money, giving generously, um, I don't want you to start with like coming to ask me a bunch of questions or reading a bunch of books or doing anything like that. What I want you to do is go before the Lord in prayer. I know this is a largely single room, uh, but for those listening online, if you are married, pray with your spouse. Uh, if you are unmarried, pray by yourself, pray with your roommates, pray with your friends, and simply ask the Lord, what would you have me to give? But maybe more importantly than that, the question is, Lord, who would you have me to be? What kind of person are you forming me into? Uh, like I'll never forget this. Back in 2014, uh, I began preaching a, a series in our high school ministry, uh, and it was on the book of Psalms. And in the book of Psalms, I, I was preaching through different books or different chapters of Psalms, and I came across a chapter that ended up changing my life when it comes to the subject. Uh, I came across uh, the, the chapter of the Psalms, Psalm chapter 67. And as I was preaching through Psalm chapter 67, I heard the, hit the first and second verse. And I wanna tell you these verses because it changed my life and the way I view money. We're gonna put it on the screen right now. Here's Psalm 67, one and two. The prayer at the beginning of the Psalm is may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. And I gotta tell you why this Psalm changed my life so much when it came to giving. See, I had grown up with the understanding that God is gonna bless us, God's gonna be gracious to us, God is going to give to us, but somehow my understanding of that was that you were never supposed to ask God for his blessing. 
that asking God for his blessing, asking God to be gracious to you, asking God to give you more was always a sign that you were hungry for money, that you believed the prosperity gospel, that you wanted money more than you wanted God. And yet right here in Psalm 67, here it is. God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us. And this moved me so deeply because here was a prayer in the Bible that I was actually at liberty. I had freedom to ask that God would bless me. I had freedom to ask that God would bless my family, that his face would shine on us, that his blessing would be upon me. But here's the important part of the Psalm. It's those next two words, so that, so that your ways may be known on the earth, your salvation amongst all nations. See, this was a life-changing psalm for me. Because when I saw that, I saw I'm allowed to, I have permission. God, in fact, invites me to pray that I would be blessed, that God would pour out his blessing and his favor, even his financial favor upon my life. But it's not for my sake. And it's not for just for the sake of my family. It's not for my comfort. It's not for my enjoyment. It's not, God, would you bless me so I'll have more stuff, so I can have more money in my accounts and everything's easier on me. It was so that his ways may be known on earth and his salvation amongst all the nations. Can I give you three prayers to pray? If you are wrestling before the Lord on how you might give, wrestling before the Lord on your generosity, here's three prayers that my wife and I, we pray one of these prayers in some way or another almost every day in our home. Number one, God, would you bless my life so that I can be a blessing to the world? God, would you bless me? God, I just pray you would bless me in every conceivable way, physical, material, spiritual, relational, physical, every single thing. God, would you bless me so that I can be a blessing to the world? You know, my wife and I play over our family and our children. God, would you bless our family so that we can be a blessing to the world? Bless our children so that they can be a blessing to the world. And God, would you bless our church so that we can be a blessing to the world? What do we want to do in our prayer life? It's not just that we're asking God, what should I give? It's that we're saying, God, would you bless me with more so that I can give more? And you know what God loves to do with people who are willing to give? He loves to give them more because he knows exactly what they're going to do with it. This is a lifestyle that is shaped by prayer. Here's number one, you start with prayer. Number two is you start now. You start now. And I need to just declare this over this room especially. You start right now. The biggest lie you will ever tell yourself is I will give away more money once I have more money. Once I graduate college, once I graduate grad school, once I get my real job, once I pay off my student loans, once I already have my house and have saved up for the down payment, once I've paid off my debt, once my car is all settled, once there's less pressure, once the kids are out of school, once I'm out of school, that is the lie we tell ourselves. And that is never true. The idea that someday you will accumulate enough money to become comfortable with giving is a lie we tell ourselves that is never true. I love what John D. Rockefeller says. He says this, he says, I would have never been able to tithe on the first million dollars I ever made if I have not tithed on my first salary, which was $1.50 per week. See, here's the invitation for you tonight. If you are feeling the conviction of the spirit, my invitation for you is to start now. You go, how do I start now? There's a box over there if you want to put money in. You can go online and you can give on the Calvary website. You you can figure out another way to give uh, through the app, through the website, through the box. There's a million ways to give. But but here's my encouragement. Um, The idea that you'll start when things are a little more settled, you'll start when you're out of school, you'll start when you have more money, has never been true. The invitation for all of us when it comes to the prompting of the Holy Spirit in our life is to start now. Number one, start with prayer. Number two, start now. Number three, start small. Start, start small. I just, I think some people even want to push back on this because they go, no, we should just start being as generous as we possibly can. But I've learned that that never really works when it comes to spiritual growth. See, again, because we believe in grace giving, the goal is not that you check a box or follow a rule or hit an obligation that God has for you. The goal is that you would grow in the grace of this activity, this grace of giving, this spiritual discipline of giving. And I love the way the author of Atomic Habits, James Clear, puts it. He says that a habit must be established before it can be improved. And I think this is true of the spiritual life too. Like when someone comes to me and says, I'm not reading my Bible, but if God's people delight in God's word, I want to start reading my Bible for the first time in my life. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read the whole Bible in a year. I go, listen, if that's what God's telling you to do, by all means do that. But listen, there's no rule that says you have to do that. And I'm concerned that if you try to do too much too fast, you'll actually get burnt out and you won't grow into this grace of Bible reading. 
The same would be true if you decided like, I am out of shape and things are not going well in my life. So here's what I'm gonna do. Next weekend, I'm signing up for a marathon. I'm gonna hit the ground running and I'm gonna get in shape. I think everyone in this room would be like, whoa, 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 whoa. The goal is that you build this into your life as a lifelong thing, not that you crush it next weekend, right? The same goes for giving. I encourage people who wanna begin giving to start small, to build this into their life as a habit. Now listen, if the Holy Spirit of God is prompting you to start big and to go all in, praise God, do that. But what I am telling you as a shepherd and a pastor is that if you wanna step into this grace of giving, it starts like every other spiritual discipline of you building this muscle of generosity. I've said this for years in this room, I'll say it again now. I wanna encourage you if you're not giving to any church anywhere to start giving $1 per week, $1 per week. It's $52 a year. And if you're going, that's way too much because I actually have no money, make it a dollar a month. Make it a pet, whatever that is for you. If $1 a week or one nickel a week becomes too much, then really the issue isn't your bank account. There's something going on in your heart that is warring against you being generous. Now is $1 a week going to change the budget of Calvary Community Church? Of course not. But is $1 a week going to change your heart? Of course it is, and don't you ever doubt it. Because once you start to build this habit into your life, that's where God begins to transform you. You start small and you say, God, I'm gonna give regularly. I'm gonna set up recurring giving or I'm gonna make a pattern that every time I walk in on Thursday nights, I'm gonna go on my phone and give. I'm gonna go over to that little Dropbox and give. I'm gonna make a pattern in my life, not because this little donation is gonna change this church, because it's gonna change your heart. That's what we're after here. That grateful people are giving people and that God changes us through our small, small acts of obedience. Let me just give this sincere challenge to you. If you are not giving anything to any church anywhere, if you are not being generous, I want to encourage you to think about $1 a week. I want to encourage you to think about something, starting small, starting to build that muscle of generosity in this church, not because it's going to change this organization, because it's going to change you. And then here's the fourth and final step, and it is to set a new floor. Set a new floor. Um, I say things like a dollar a week, and that is not my ultimate goal for your life. Uh, If you do a dollar a week for the next 40 years, um, that would kind of be silly. And I think we all get that because I think we all intuitively understand that the goal uh, is to raise that level. The goal is to build that muscle. And in fact, I want to give this challenge that you would make it a goal to give away more money every year for the rest of your life. This is something my wife and I committed to a number of years ago. Our goal is to give away more money, more dollars every year for the rest of our life. And as hard as we have tried to find, we have yet to find a convincing argument that everyone in the world shouldn't do the same. That everyone in the world shouldn't say, my goal is to give away, um, can we put that on the screen? Make it a goal to give away more money every year for the rest of your life. That being your goal. Now, you might say to me, but what if I lose my job in five years and I can't give away more money? Then start over. Start over giving away more money. Because the only alternative to this is I'm going to give away just about the same amount of money and be just about the same amount of level of generous as I am now for the rest of my life. And that's not what I want for any other spiritual discipline in my life, right? Like, I don't want to delight in God's word just about as much now as I do when I'm 55 or 65 or 75. I want to grow in my love for God's word. I want to grow in my love for God's people. I want to grow in my love for the hurting and the lost and the poor. I want to grow in my prayer life. I want to grow in everything. And I want to grow in generosity because that's the ultimate goal here. The ultimate goal here is not just you give money to check a box or meet an obligation or to fulfill a role. The goal is that I would be a person who grows in generosity. Why does God want me to give? If Jesus could have just generated the money out of nowhere, why did he receive this money from his women followers? Because Jesus was trying to get them to grow, to become more generous every year for the rest of their lives. I want you to think about it this way. Um, This morning, my son comes up to me um, and he hands me this um, wonderful and beautiful work of art. We'll put it on the screen as well for those of you who can't see it super well. Um, It is a painting um, that he made and I want you to know uh, that this is a beautiful and precious thing to me. I really mean that. 
Like this is an amazing thing. You'll see here, I taped it up on the fridge immediately, but then decided to bring it in. But when I get home and I'm done with this weekend, I will uh, tape it up on the fridge as well. Our fridge has basically become an art gallery of every kind, but that's a different story for a different day. And you might ask, why is this so precious to you? Is it because it's worth like lots of money? And the answer is uh, no. Um, now, if you'd like to give me $100 million for this, um, we can talk after the service. I'd be happy to have that conversation. I can't be bought. Um, but... But it's not because it's worth that much money, you might ask, is it because it's artistically excellent? And I would say, no, the boy has some work to do with his color selection and with his, his brushwork. Um, some of these, I'm not an artist, some of you are, but he's, he's got some work to be done. And, and, and you might ask a bunch of questions of why this is so valuable to me, but I think intuitively you all understand why this is so valuable to me. It's valuable to me because my son sat down and painted this, and then he runs up to me and says, daddy, 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 I have a gift for you. This is for you. So why does this move my heart so deeply? Why is this so precious to me? It's not because I needed this. I wasn't sitting around this morning like, dang, I hope I could get like a lousy painting of some presents <laughs> that's like a hot mess of, I wasn't sitting around like, dang, I need this so bad. And then he gives it, I'm like, oh my gosh. No, I wasn't sitting around needing this. I was sitting around going through my life and here's what my son does. He comes up to me and he gives me this gift. And the reason this matters so deeply to me isn't because of this gift. This gift in and of itself is not what's valuable. This gift represents that my son's heart is changing in such a way that he's thinking about someone other than himself. That's maturity. Maturity is saying, I'm going to spend my time, my resources, my ability, and my life focused on someone other than me. And child of God, that's exactly what your God wants from you. God does not need your money. He is able to accomplish everything he wants in this church and in this world without you and your money. But what God is interested in is changing your heart, maturing your heart, and taking you from a place where all you think about is you and your wants and your needs and your family and your life and your stuff. And he wants to bring you into a place where you are able to offer him a thing that he does not need, but he receives with joy because he knows what it means for your heart. This is the invitation for you to be grateful and aware of what God has done in your life, to be a person who is so deeply moved by the gospel that you are moved to give to a God who says, I do not need your money. I have a cattle on a thousand hill and yet I receive it because I want you to mature and become like my son, Jesus, who gave everything for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for this evening and thank you for your word. God, thank you that we get to turn to it and that we get to be challenged, that we get to be moved. And God, I pray uh, that we would be a people who love you more than we love money. God, I am so convicted that your word says that we can't serve God and money and that in some way Jesus sees that as a competitor to our hearts. And so God, I pray for the men and women in this room that they would love you more than money, that they would love you more than their stuff, that they would find their security, not in the cash in their bank account, not in the investments they have, not in the job or the income they've secured, but rather than you and you alone. Help us to be generous. Help us to be a giving people. And God, I pray specifically for the young adults, college students, young adults, young professionals in this room, that they would establish a pattern of giving now in their lives that allows them to grow more generous every year for the rest of their lives. God, may you bless them in that way. May you keep them. God, I pray your favor, your blessing, your face would shine upon the folks in this room. God, would you pour out your resources into their lives that they might turn it around and give it to the work of your church and your gospel in this world. God, may you bless them and keep them. May your face shine upon them. May you give them peace. We pray this all in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. I hope it was a blessing to you and want to invite you to join us on Thursday nights for service at 7 p.m. To connect with us, follow us on Instagram at calvya underscore or on our website, calvarywestlake.org.